said last week that the blessing of preaching through a book of the Bible together is that you generally pretty much know what your next passage is going to be when you start preparing for your sermon. It's the next one up in line. As I also said last week, uh, that also helps you. Because then you know I'm not preaching at anyone here. I'm not thinking, oh, so-and-so may be here today. I get to launch into this subject. Well, given the topic this morning, I also, it's helpful that when I'm preaching the next subject in our book of the Bible there, I get to trust God about who's going to be there, about the timing for that sermon and the like. And I say that because the subject of our of our time this morning is divorce and remarriage. And, um, and in some way, I'm just glad that it didn't come next week on Valentine's Day weekend. That would have been really, really challenging to come for a Valentine's uh, weekend service and hear uh, that sermon. But I, I make a joke there, but only to say this. Last week, we talked about marriage. Marriage God's way. And the real heart of that passage was in what Jesus said about marriage. He said, what therefore God has joined together. And that was really the heart of what we talked about last week. That marriage is about God putting two people together. Gluing them together. And we understood last week that if God's view of marriage, God's his design, his intent for marriage, is that a husband and wife be united, be as one, then let us pursue oneness for those of us who are married. Let us pursue daily reconciliation with one another. Let us pursue humbly serving one another, pursuing intimacy with one another, because it is reflecting the very nature of God and his purpose of redemption in bringing out of the world a special people for himself to be, if you'll allow the picture, married to his son. We, as his church, I don't mean here at Straightgate, I mean across the world, we are the bride of Christ. And one day we will be united at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a picture of what God is doing in the world today, our own individual marriages. And that's why this week, as I noted last week, we need to turn to the other half of this passage. If Jesus says what therefore God has joined together, that's God's view of marriage. How does that verse end? Let not man put asunder, separate. If last week we talked about marriage, God's way, this week we need to address what Jesus says about divorce and what it means. And I say this because I know that this topic is one that has such great sensitivity behind it. We are in a world today, in a, in a country where even fairly, I think, conservative estimates of divorce suggest that 40% or so of marriages will end in divorce. A nearly 4 in 10 chance. In the past, probably, that divorce rate was even higher. 
which tells me one thing clearly. I don't think there is a person here today in our service or one who will be after perpetually uh, listening uh, online given the availability of these messages that has not been touched somewhere by divorce. It may be because you yourself have been divorced. You may yourself may have been divorced and remarried. It may be that your parents were divorced and you experienced that divorce in a different way coming from the perspective of a child. It may be that a family member has gone through divorce or is going through a painful divorce. If not that, a close friend, a coworker, someone that you are close to has been touched by divorce. We all have been touched by divorce. And that makes it very important for me that as I come here to teach and to preach on this sensitive topic, that I'm approaching it in the spirit of compassion, even as I intend to approach it in the spirit of clarity. And I hope that as we preach and as we teach on this subject today, we will all come with one thought in mind and one thought above all others, no matter what your personal relationship this morning is to the subject of divorce. It's this, what does God think? That's far more important than what I think. It's far more important than what you think and what you even and I have experienced on this subject. What does God think? And I hope that the, the, the clarity that we atten- attempt to bring to the word of God each week will be the same thing that we bring this morning. Number one, let us not say less than what the Bible says. Let us not say less than what God thinks about this topic, but also let us not say more than God thinks. Let us not go beyond what Jesus is teaching us here in Mark chapter 10 and what the teaching of Scripture is on it. So with that introduction, I want to preach a message this morning I'm simply going to title, Let Not Man Put Asunder. Let Not Man Put Asunder, Separate, Divide, Jesus is Clear, reference to divorce. Now, where are we in the context here of Mark chapter 10? If you have your Bibles with you, I just encourage you to have them open with us this morning in whatever form you have them so we can look at the text together and you can say, Peter, are you actually saying what the Bible says? That's what the most important thing for any of us is. Are we actually saying what God says? Now, if you look with me in verse number one, Jesus has come into the coast of Judea by Jordan, by the Jordan River, where he had previously ministered, where he had been baptized. And the people resort unto him again, and as and his, he was one, it was, as, it was his type, it was his custom, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away, and that word means divorce, to divorce his wife, tempting him, they were testing him, Now, we touched base on this just briefly last week. Why were the Pharisees testing him, tempting him? Well, they almost certainly knew that Jesus had already given a very strong statement on divorce. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus gives his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses divorce and remarriage in the Sermon on the Mount. And it is all very strong words will may have the opportunity to take a quick look at them later today. And so the Pharisees already would have had an idea of what this Jesus of Nazareth was saying about divorce. 
And so they wanted to bring him and trap him by now asking him publicly when these crowds are surrounding him. It's not a surprise to you. If you want to get a politician to trip up, ask him a hard question that you know they're going to say something unpopular and watch him stumble. Watch them worry, how am I going to frame this in a way so that I don't offend the most number of people? And they wanted Jesus to try to trip around like a politician stumbling over his words. Jesus, what are you going to say? Are you going to take a really strong view on divorce? You say, why would that have been unpopular? Because divorce was endemic at the, in this age. Divorce was common. Divorce was regular. Not only that, do you remember, was there any political leader of this day who maybe had some sensitivities around divorce and remarriage? Do you remember a guy named Herod Antipas? Do you remember what happened to John the Baptist when John the Baptist looked at him and said, it's not lawful for you to take your brother's wife to break up his marriage and marry her? What happened to John the Baptist? He lost his head. Do you think the Pharisees might have been wondering whether this might be a nice side effect of getting Jesus to speak publicly on divorce and remarriage, that maybe they'd not only get him in trouble with the crowd, but they could even get him in trouble with the, the, the government of the day? Maybe. I think it's a reasonable speculation. But in any event, they weren't coming to him sincerely. They were coming to trap him, to take a position. Now notice what Jesus says. And he answered and said unto them, in verse 3, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered or permitted to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away, to divorce her. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. Now stop there for just a moment and we'll look at our first point this morning, what I'm going to call a permission. A permission. The Pharisees said, Moses permitted us to write a bill or a certificate of divorce and hand it to our wife and to divorce her. Now, let's just look for just a moment at what Moses actually said. You don't have to turn there, but you can, if you'd like, or you can jot it in your Bible as a cross-reference. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verses 1 through 2. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 in two. Here's what Moses says. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Some uncleanness in her. Let her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement. There's that certificate of divorce. And give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. So Moses' law was that when there was this uncleanness found in a wife, the man was permitted to write a certificate of divorce and divorce her, and then she was allowed to go and be remarried. So the Pharisees look at this, and their only question is, what does uncleanness mean? What, what do we have to find to get rid of our wife? What do we, what's the test that we need to live up to so that we can justify what we already want to do? And as I said last week, there were two schools of thought, two dominant schools of thought in Jewish law at that day. One was the Rabbi Shammai. The Rabbi Shammai taught 
that uncleanness meant marital infidelity. It meant adultery. It meant, in our words, cheating on your spouse. And if your spouse cheated on you, Rabbi Shammai would say, you are required to divorce her. It is your duty to divorce an unfaithful wife. Send her away. But the more popular view was the view of a man named Rabbi Hillel. Rabbi Hillel had a much more permissive view of divorce and remarriage. In fact, this is from a commentator that I consult regularly. He, called, he said of the school of Hillel, they interpreted that crucial phrase as widely as possible. They said that it could mean if the wife spoiled a dish of food, you could write her a bill of divorce and send her out immediately. If she spun in the streets, that is to say, if she showed her ankles in the streets, you could divorce her if you wanted. If she talked to a strange man, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's relations in his hearing, as I said last week, better not diss his mom-in-law, his, your mother-in-law, he might write you a bill of divorcement. If she was a brawling woman, in fact, one rabbi apparently even went to the length of saying that it meant if a man found a woman who was fairer in his eyes than his wife was, he thought she was more beautiful, he could divorce her. This, these were the two dominant thoughts of the day. And so if they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we hear you're drawing a really hard line on divorce, who's Jesus going up against? The popular view that said, hey, we can divorce for just about any reason we want if we find some uncleanness. Divorce would be mandatory in certain cases. Notice Jesus' response. He said, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now stop there for just a minute. Notice what Jesus is saying. You're taking this as a broad, mandatory ought to. We get to. Jesus says, do you know that in the beginning, the only reason this is in the Mosaic Law is because you had hard hearts. You were hard-hearted people for the hardness of your hearts. Now, in what way could he be saying that? Well, let's pause for just a minute. Don't forget that the Old Testament law was not just, was not just a religious law. It was a civil law. In other words, it was the law for the nation, not just for the church. It was the law to regulate the entire state relationship between the government and between the people. And so think about what actually was happening. The truth was in that day, divorce was everywhere, like it is today, like it was in Jesus' day. Divorce was common. It was already a part of the society. And so Moses, at God's direction, put a law in not to permit what before was unheard of but to regulate and to restrain and to limit the harm of what was being done. In what way? Because if a husband needed to write out a certificate of divorce before he could divorce his wife, that meant that he couldn't just go and just fly off the handle and look at his wife and say, get out, and she'd go out of the house with no rights whatsoever to be destitute and impoverished on the streets. What it meant was that when she got a bill of divorcement that required her husband not just to act solely on temper, 
perhaps to reflect, perhaps to allow himself to cool down. In the same way, she then had a bill of divorcement that proved that she was no longer married and that she could remarry in order to provide for her needs. This was limiting the harm that was coming from completely unregulated, unrestricted divorce that was common in that day. Jesus said it was for the hardness of your hearts. It was because you would not follow God's original design for marriage. It was because you were pursuing this costly, unregulated, unlimited form of divorce that Moses said, we are going to put some protections in place. And Jesus is making clear, and he's going to make clear, that this is different from God's original intent. And do you know this is true for all of us? I want you to think for a moment, if you're a young parent like I am and you have young kids and you walk into your house one day and there are toys strewed across literally every single room of your house. They're in your playroom. They're in the kitchen. They're in the dining room. They're in your bed. They're in your bedroom. They're in your bed, for goodness sakes. They're in the bathroom. You are tripping over toys at every single step. You can tell I have no experience with this whatsoever, not even a little bit. I want you to imagine that you as a parent said, kids, this is going to end. All of your toys are going in one room. You may not bring them out. And when you are playing with them, we're going to close the door, and you may never bring a toy out of that room to play anywhere else in the house. This mess is going to be limited to one room. I want you to think, would I therefore, because I limited their playing their, with the toys, limited, regulated the mess they were making, would I be giving them permission to make a mess? Would I be saying, go ahead and make a mess in the playroom. Don't worry about tea. No. I would simply be regulating, I would be limiting the mess they were already predisposed to make. I would be limiting the effects of what they already as little children were predisposed to do. In the same way, if I were sending my children out rollerblading and I put a helmet on them and I put knee pads on them and I put elbow pads on them, would I therefore be directing them at their closest opportunity to take a swan dive onto the concrete and see how far they skid? Of course not. I am trying to limit, I'm trying to regulate the harm that they would do in what they are predisposed to. And I think what Jesus is saying here is saying this, don't look at what Moses said as God's own stamp of approval on this practice. Look at it as God's gracious, loving attempt to limit the harm that you are creating, particularly on the woman, the innocent party who has been divorced and sent out. Jesus says, for the hardness of your hearts, he gave you this. That was the permission. But notice secondly now, the prohibition. There's a permission, but now there's a prohibition. Notice what Jesus says. But from the beginning of the creation, but, in other words, this is different than what God's intent is. God from the beginning made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother that foundational relationship of his early life. It's disruptive to be married. He leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. Literally, they are glued together. And they twain, the two of them shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, they are no more two, 
but one flesh. Now look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Let no one separate. That's literally what he's saying. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Now notice, first of all, he's talking about something inseparable. Two people becoming one. If you were to take liquids and you were to pour liquid together like you were making a soup together, there would be a very quick point after pouring those liquids together when you could no longer separate them. The two are one. There are certain kinds of glue and other materials that once you join two materials together, you literally cannot separate them without doing a severe kind of damage. God is saying what I, what God has put together, joined, glued together, let no one separate. He is clearly, it seems to me, drawing a contrast between what Moses permitted for a specific regulatory and, and limiting purpose and what God's view of this is. Notice what he says, not just something inseparable, but something impermissible. If God put it together, if God was the one who joined these two people together, then don't let who separate? Man. I want you to think about what God is asserting there. God is asserting his authority. Do you, do you see that? God is saying, I am God. And if I put two people together, man, who are you? Who are you? to say that I messed up? Who are you to assert your authority over me and say that we can separate what I, God himself, has put together? In fact, friends, one of the things that we just all need to come into, whatever our view, our own personal view on these passages is, we have to simply bow our knee to the authority of God and say, God, it doesn't matter what I think. You have authority to say what goes. Why? Because in the beginning, you made us. That's what Jesus says. In the beginning, God made them male and female. And God gets that authority to say how you and I relate to our spouse in marriage. Let no one separate what something inseparable, something impermissible, and notice thirdly, something, what I'll say, impossible. Will you look at with me at verse 10? And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away, that's divorce, his wife, and marry another, commits adultery against her. He's speaking of a man here. Now notice in 12, he's going to apply that same thing to a woman. And if a woman shall put away or divorce her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. You say, what's he talking about here? I want to read something from Romans chapter 7. Paul is bringing in an analogy from marriage to his own spiritual argument. But listen to what he says. He says, for the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. 
There is no biblical prohibition against remarriage after a spouse dies. There is no such prohibition. That, that spouse is fully free to remarry. But notice what he says. So then if, while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Now do you understand what God is, is saying here? He's saying, what I have joined together, let no one separate. Let no one put it apart. And here's the reason. Because God is saying, if you divorce, that doesn't mean that your marriage is over in my eyes. What is adultery? Adultery is you being with someone who is not your wife, who is not your husband. And it's as if God is saying that act of remarriage, that act of bringing someone else into that bond has not thereby severed that bond in God's eyes. He says that is adultery because it is going against the one flesh relationship I created. I joined together. Do you see here, Jesus simply says, if a man, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. Maybe we could say it like this. Have you ever heard that old phrase, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy? Heard that before? There are some things in us that we can remove by way of relationship, but it doesn't change something fundamental about us. And what I hear Jesus saying here is this. You can take the man out of the marriage with the divorce. But in a sense, in God's eyes, you can't take the marriage out of the man. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Let no one put asunder. I want to pause here for just a moment to say this. The first question that's probably coming to our minds is, is there an exception? This is really strong medicine. This is strong stuff. Because here you'll notice in verse 11 and 12, Jesus doesn't make an exception. He just says categorically, this is the way it is. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes clear that it's not just the party who is the divorcing party who commits adultery and remarriage. He actually says it's also the innocent party who has been divorced. He says, in fact, if a man divorces, puts away a woman, he causes her to commit adultery. He's assuming she's going to get remarried. He says, you husband who divorced your wife, you caused her, the innocent party in this situation, to commit adultery. This is God's view of what he did in marriage and its effect on us. So let's go back to that question. Is there an exception? Well, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9 is most commonly cited as an exception to what Jesus is saying here. I'll read it for you and you can flip over there and look at it if you'd like. Here's what Jesus says. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away, shall divorce his wife, except it be for fornication and shall marry another, commits adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. That, that word, except it be for fornication. Now, I'll tell you something up front here. The vast majority of conservative commentators who stand on the word of God 
believe that that exception allows for divorce and remarriage in the case of, at a minimum, unrepentant adultery. That when a spouse is sinning, has sinned in that way, has, has, has violated that fundamental physical one flesh relationship, that that gives permission, not, not a duty, not a command. It gives permission to the spouse, the innocent spouse, to pursue divorce and remarriage. In fact, one of our great friends here, um, the evangelist Rick Flanders, I've spoken with him about this subject. I don't think he would have a problem with me sharing with you. That's his position on this. This is not just people who are trying to be compromisers or just trying to fit in. These are people who are trying to understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. I will just tell you, I am not convinced I'm not convinced on that particular topic. If you want to hear in excruciating detail what my position is, we preached an entire sermon series on this passage and what Jesus is trying to get at here. And you can go listen to it on our website. I actually, it's the title is Except for Fornication. And I preached it on August 18, 2019. Just make sure you've got free time. I went for over an hour and 15 minutes. You think I preach long normally. Just wait until I have something a little, a little more difficult to sink my teeth into. Let me just summarize it very briefly, what my own view and my own conviction. I think Jesus is more likely than not talking about a, a particular kind of fornication that took place in what the, the Jews refer to as the betrothal period before marriage, in which it's unlike our engagement period, where we just give someone a ring, but we can take the ring off and give it back and say, here, I changed my mind. In the Jewish day, betrothal was like marriage. It was a binding agreement. You just weren't living together yet. And if you wanted to release someone during that betrothal period, you actually had to divorce them. You actually had to go through with the divorce. And Matthew chapter 2 records that, um, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 1 records that Joseph, when he heard that Mary, his wife, was pregnant, his betrothed, his engaged woman was pregnant before they were married, he was minded to divorce her. And I think that what Jesus may be saying there is included to, sh to show that in that period, particularly because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, that he was saying that doesn't count. I'm not talking about what Joseph was thinking about doing with Mary. I'm not speaking of that. I think also it could mean to another kind of fornication or another kind of sexual immorality that would make the marriage void from the very beginning. Here's an example. God does not join ever a brother and sister together in marriage. He does not make them one flesh. That, that relationship, that marriage would be void in God's eyes from the very start. God says that is wrong. And we should say this relevantly in our age. A homosexual marriage is not joined in God's eyes. He does not make two people one in that relationship. I think we could say in those kinds of situations, certainly this would be what Jesus is saying. Now I say that again. I am in the decided minority in this view. And I understand that and I recognize that ultimately we need to come to a conviction about what that exactly means. What is our church's position on this? Our church's position is this. We hold a high view in our, in our minds of the sanctity 
of marriage. Given the sobriety that Jesus speaks here, let no one separate, let no one put asunder. He says if this kind of marriage, remarriage, happens in a way that's not justified, it's adultery. Our own conviction as elders is that we will never encourage divorce and remarriage. We will never counsel it. We will never come beside you and say you should go forward with what God says in this view, let no one put asunder. And yet we also recognize that given the real challenges in understanding that exception clause in Matthew chapter 19, except it be for fornication, we would not discipline someone who in good faith, in the case of unrepentant adultery, would be divorced and remarried. We would leave that to the individual conscience and we would permit but never encourage and never counsel in that direction. I can tell you personally, all of us as elders, as we have discussed this subject, have committed to one another, if God forbid our marriage were to break down, we would never be remarried. We would always stand and pursue reconciliation. This is our commitment to one another as elders. We are not holding out as a position anything that we ourselves are not bound to as our own conviction. There is permission, there is a very serious word of prohibition. And then thirdly and briefly, I want to speak on some practical application. How does this relate to all of us who are here? These very sobering words that Jesus gives for us. The first thing is, to those of you who are single, my practical application to all of us, anyone who is single here, is clarity of mind clarity. When you are looking ahead to a potential marriage relationship, look at it with the clarity that God pro provides to marriage. That marriage is something that, is, that he is putting together, not you. That it is something that he intends from the very beginning to be permanent and to be exclusive and for no one to separate. We should all have that kind of sobriety as two people become one in God's eyes. And I will say to you, my friends, I will say, when you recognize the weight of marriage, the sobriety of marriage, the meaning of marriage in God's eyes, please, please do not turn away from the counsel of those ones who are speaking into your life about that potential marriage. Listen for red flags. Watch for red flags. Listen to the counsel of those who are near you. The, the experience of those who have pushed past red flags, who have pushed past the, the wise counsel of those who are close to them and said, this is what I want, has led in many cases to such heartache and to such grief. My father used to like to say, marry in haste, repent at leisure. Marry in haste, repent at leisure. This is something not to be entered unadvisedly or lightly. Second, to the married. If you're married here this morning, what is, I think, a, a, a fitting practical application for you? It is conviction. It is conviction that your marriage is intended to be a permanent, exclusive relationship. That in the vows that we have here at Straightgate Church, two people say to each other that they vow certain things to one another until death do us part. And I hope today that our shared conviction as a church is that our marriages are utterly 
utterly founded on that idea. That that word divorce does not enter our vocabulary when it relates to our relationship with our spouse, that it does not enter into our thought patterns when it comes into our marriage relationship because we know that God says, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Let me also say this. What's the application to those who are married and are struggling? To those who are married and are hurting today? I am not blind to the reality that even in our churches today, there are marriages that are in deep pain, that have suffering, that have brokenness, that have even isolation in that marriage that God intended to be an intimate one flesh connection. What about you? The first thing I would say is compassion, is compassion. We need to recognize that when our marriages are struggling, it is not an indelible mark of failure on us as a person. And it does not need to be something that we need to hide from everyone else in our lives. Marriage is so important, marriage is so critical that as I said last week, if you are not able to resolve that suffering that is going on in your marriage, that isolation and that difficulty, seek help. Seek help. It is too critical to your own flourishing, to your family's flourishing, that we decide to stand with God, that what God has joined together, we're going to pursue together. I will admit to you, there are things that we are not equipped as a church there are marriages that we are not equipped to fully help with our own resources, with our own bivocational elders whose time is stretched in so many ways. And that is exactly why if you come to us, we will help you find the, a, a, a biblically-based counselor who can provide help to you. And I will say this again, if, finan if finances are a reason for you not to pursue counseling, then I plead with you to come and talk with us. We have helped and supported others financially in getting the help they need in this area of marriage, and we want to talk to you and encourage you and make sure that it is not a burden for you. If we don't, as a church, put our money where our mouth is on that, we are fools. We are hypocrites. We stand for marriage, and we support your marriage, no matter how difficult it is right now, no matter how much of a challenge it is. Here's another thing. Care. Care for those of you who are in marriages who are struggling. I, we have to address this subject. I have been speaking today about marriages in which both people are sincere believers who, who are seeking to support and encourage each other. You may not have a great marriage right now, but, but you are in good faith toward each other. You're trying to do the right thing, even as sometimes and so often we fail. But there are marriages in which one partner is not in good faith, in which abuse has entered the marriage, in which there is the intentional infliction of malicious and bad faith treatment of another person. That is all over our world today, and we should not be, a, it, we should not be a, a surprised when sometimes it enters our church. Here's our view. Our view of marriage is that there is a place for the protection of those who are being harmed in their marriage. I believe, and I teach, and I will stand on, that there, a, a wife or a husband does not need to stay and be in a place where they are endangered in that way. And we would say in the case of that situation, there may be a provision for separation 
and for protection in that case. In my life as a lawyer, I volunteer my time to help women who are battered get orders for protection, harassment, restraining orders. And I can tell you as a church, we discipline sins. We do not punish crimes. And when there is a crime that is being committed, it may very well be the place of the state for us to involve them and involve even the criminal or the civil process in that matter. We stand to protect those who are vulnerable to those who are being abused in that way. Have we been perfect? Will we be perfect on that front? I'm sure not. But by God's grace, we do believe there is absolutely a place for the protection of those who are in that kind of relationship. Another, another category, what about those who are divorced? If you're divorced here today, or maybe you're estranged from your spouse and you're isolated, what is the practical application to you? It is this. It is community. And I'm speaking as much to you as I'm speaking to us as a church body. When there are those who are isolated and estranged right now, and they are not pursuing, they're either not pursuing divorce or they're not pursuing remarriage in trying to live out what Jesus says here. They're trying to fulfill the words that Jesus has. There is a place for you in our community. Listen to what Jesus says in, in, in um, Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at it just a few verses after this. Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or, or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. If we are going to hold a high view of marriage together as a church, that means we need to say to people who are isolated and estranged from their spouse, they're living in a kind of involuntary singleness, we need to say to them, you are involved with us. That what they are giving away, that what they are standing on right now in that singleness can be brought into a family in which they are supported and cared for in community. That's on us, friends. That's not just on me as a pastor. It's not just on us as elders. It's on us as a church to look to those who are isolated and estranged in that marriage relationship and bring them into our families and care for them and bring them in to that community. Last, what about to those of you who are divorced and remarried? What's the practical application? I wonder, it would be easy to wonder, is, is Pastor Peter saying that if I entered into a remarriage that was adulterous, that that means my entire marriage has been adultery? Does that mean that, that I should end my second marriage because I don't want to be an adulterer in God's eyes? I want to say very clearly, I don't believe that's the teaching of the Bible. I don't believe it. One, because your marriage was a real marriage. Because you two physically became one flesh, because you made vows to one another that till death do you part, I believe it glorifies God for you to stand on that even second marriage that may have been adultery to enter, but it is appropriate for you to stand and live together in. One example that came to mind is the example of an, a, 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 a Christian, say, young woman who marries an unbeliever. When a Christian woman marries an unbeliever, is that sin in God's eyes? It is. The Bible says you should only marry another believer. 
And yet, does God then say that because that initial marriage was a sin, now therefore, 10 years or 20 years later, when you realize that was wrong, you should divorce him? No, the opposite. 1 Corinthians expressly says, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, if you're married to an unbeliever and he or she is fine to live with you together, then don't divorce them. That's a command. And in the same way, I believe that even if the initial entry of a marriage after divorce is adultery, that God nonetheless, the same grace in which God forgives us of our sins and of our mistakes and of our failures is the same grace that will empower and enable you to live out a one flesh union with your second spouse in a way that glorifies God and that fulfills his calling for your life. Might it be appropriate for you to be honest with God and say, God, I messed up. This wasn't your ideal. This wasn't your intent. I've been wrong. Yes. Is it appropriate for you to support and live like God wants you to in that second marriage? Yes, it is. And that's our conviction as, as elders in this church. If you're divorced and remarried, you're not a second-class citizen here. You're a part of our community together, and we support your marriage like we support every other one. And finally, and very quickly, one practical application to all of us. One practical application to all of us. Why do we take a high view of marriage? Why do we stand on what Jesus says here and says what God has joined together, let no one separate, let no one put apart. Where I ended last week is where I want to end today. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that the one flesh relationship between God, between man and wife is a picture of the one flesh relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, you and me. And can I tell you something unreservedly and unashamedly, friends, that Jesus will never divorce his bride. Jesus will never divorce you. I want you to listen from Matthew chapter 18, what Jesus says about his little ones who have strayed. Listen to this. If a man, he says, have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray. Doth he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seeks that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. How often, friends, be honest, how often do you and I in our marriage, if you will, with God, in our relationship with God, cheat on Him. Fail to love Him. Sin against Him, sometimes intentionally and willfully. And every time we come back to Him to confess our sins and to claim the blood of Christ, He forgives us, He reconciles with us, and He invites us back into the sweetest, intimate fellowship with Him. That's why we stand with a high view of marriage. Because the picture that we give to each other of husbands and wives who pursue reconciliation at all costs, who humbly forgive each other, who pursue intimate fellowship with one another no matter the pressure and the strain and the difficulty and sin that invades our marriage because ultimately we are giving a, a picture what Jesus' relationship is like with us. And I pray today that wherever you are in singleness or marriage or divorce 
or remarriage, that above all things, you would embrace the fact today that God will hold you fast, that if you're his, he will never let you go. And may that in the same way be the kind of conviction that you have in your relationships to pursue that kind of sacrificial, reconciling, forgiving, 